My name is Dr. Ian Storch. I'm a board-certified gastroenterologist and osteopathic physician, and you are listening to DO or Do Not. If you're interested in joining our team or have suggestions or comments, please contact us at doordonotpodcast.com. Share our link with your friends and like us on Apple Podcasts, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We hope you enjoy this episode. Earlier this year, we interviewed Jeremy Pullman, an exemplary osteopathic physician who wrote a book called Core Concepts to help osteopathic students prepare for the Comlex exam. I spoke to Jeremy a few weeks ago, and he told me that he will be at OMED, the osteopathic conference, which is being held in Boston to help promote his book. He invited the Do or Do Not team to come and spend time at the booth, talk about his book, and do live interviews with osteopaths and osteopathic students about their experiences. We're excited to take him up on the offer and will be present at OMED on Saturday, October 29th from 9 to 6 at booth 303. If you're there, we would love to see you and have you on the podcast. Please stop by and say hello. Hi, everyone. My name is Christine Lee, OMS4 at the New York Institute of Technology College of Osteopathic Medicine. On this episode of the DO or Do Not, we interview Dr. Laura Wolf, a non-invasive cardiologist and a mother of two. Dr. Wolf attended medical school at the Lake Erie College of Osteopathic Medicine, then completed her internal medicine residency at NYU Winthrop Hospital, and continued to pursue a fellowship in cardiovascular disease at that institution. She currently works with a large group practice affiliated with Stony Brook University Hospital. On today's interview, Dr. Wolf will share her medical journey, how she navigated and excelled as a DO in a predominantly MD residency, and how she has excelled as a female physician in a male-predominated subspecialty. Dr. Wolf will also reflect on her relationship with her late aunt and role model, Dr. Natalie Azalum, whose story was featured in episode 75 during the interview with Dr. Philip Nizza. We hope you enjoyed the episode. My name is Hadia Tarek, and I'm an OMS2 at the Alabama College of Osteopathic Medicine. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Laura Wolf, who is a cardiologist from New York. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So let's start with what your normal day looks like, what your work and responsibilities are, and what type of patients you typically see. So I'm a non-invasive cardiologist. I am split clinically between an inpatient practice and, and an outpatient practice which is so much fun because you don't have to get pigeonholed in cardiology to only be in the office or only be in the hospital. So you really get to see a full diverse breadth of patients. So I'm part of a 14 physician practice, so pretty large practice. We cover three different hospitals. So my day usually either begins in the office or in the hospital, depending on where I'm placed for that day. If I'm in the hospital, I start my morning by rounding on however many patients there are an inpatient to round on. The cool part about inpatient cardiology is you really see a very broad spectrum of severity of illness from covering the CCU to covering outpatients that are coming in for elective procedures to patients that are admitted to telemetry to patients walking into the emergency room. You see everything. So on hospital days, I'll be doing Anywhere between 20 and 25 rounds, you know, plus or minus new consults as they come in throughout the day. That's the only downside to hospital medicine is that there's no firm structure to say, well, you know, my last patient is booked at five. 
right? You don't have that. You could have a day where your last consult is called at noon, or you could have a day that your last consult is called at seven at night. (laughs) Um, So your day is highly variable. As opposed to my office days, my office days are pretty structured. You know, you have patient slot hours. It's what you would imagine as an office clinician to be. The cool thing about being in the office too, is that you get to read a lot of studies. So I read nuclear studies as well as echocardiography, EKGs, obviously with every single patient, but that's built into your day. So you're not just seeing patient after patient after patient. You're seeing a patient and then reading an echo and then going downstairs and looking at some spec images. And it's a lot of variability, which makes it not get boring. I knew early on that I couldn't live in one spot. My husband's a rheumatologist, so he literally has an office, sees patients back and forth every single day, and that's what he loves. He loves standard routine. I could never do that. I knew that about myself is that I thrive on seeing different things and having that exposure being variable from day to day. I think a lot of people go into medicine for the excitement, and so it's good to know that cardiology has that. Oh, cardiology has a ton of that. It's just how excited do you want to be? So, So when I first started as an attending... Part of you wants all of the fascinating cases, right? The zebras, you want to see all of that all the time. And the bread and butter cardiology you find to be mundane. And then you realize that in the time it takes you to see one zebra and spend a lot of time with that patient, you can see eight bread and butter cardiology cases and do it well and interact and make a difference in those patients' lives probably more so than the zebra case, right? Because the zebra case, you're going to get, right? It, it's it's going to be awesome and fun and exciting, if you will. But the bread and butter cases, what you realize more and more about medicine is that it's interpersonal relationships. It's teaching people how to manage their hypertension, teaching people what to do about high cholesterol and why it's so important to manage it early. It's those types of interventions that have such a lasting effect But what gets you right out is like you said, I want the cool cases. I want to do stuff. I want to be hands-on. I want to do things that excite me. But what's exciting too, and what you probably is a sign of my aging (laughs) is you get excited by patient knowledge and patient education and their appreciation of their disease process, which at first, when you first come out is so boring (laughs) And, and you think that this is not worth your energy. Shouldn't I be spending all my days in the CCU? Shouldn't I be spending all my days doing stuff, intervening, helping, hands-on? And it turns out that you actually have much more lasting legacy, if you will, with those patient encounters that are more mundane. So you mentioned zebras. So I have to ask, have you had any patients recently that stood out to you? Sure. So I saw my gentleman in the office who is remarkable. So he has terrible diabetes and it was thought for a while that he just had, you know, diastolic heart failure by one of my predecessors who was seeing him. And I talked to him a little bit more and he's also a renal transplant recipient. He's had dialysis sessions intermittently throughout his life, depending on, you know, his status of his kidneys, but he's also has some restrictive lung disease. And, you know, I got to talking to him for a while and I talked to his pulmonologist and I said, you know, I'm very concerned about this guy and I don't think that this is straight for diastolic dysfunction because when you look at on an echo, you can see much more than just diastology. Sometimes we use something called strain imaging, which is a very cool way of seeing how the heart muscle moves and relax in a very minute way that the eye really can't appreciate. And so I did strain on him and the strain was grossly abnormal. And I sent him for a cardiac MRI and he has cardiac sarcoid. 
which is exceedingly rare. It's a little bit more rare than cardiac amyloid, which we're finding more and more frequently, the more and more we're looking in the right population, you know, but, but he has cardiac sarcoid and he's doing fantastic with it between myself and his rheumatologist and his pulmonologist with the combination of autoimmune therapy, he's doing great. So the fun thing about being a non-invasive cardiologist in a private practice setting is that you get the first dibs at those patients, right? So even though he came in initially for run-of-the-mill heart failure, end-stage adrenal disease, diabetes, he kind of looks like a classic cardiac patient. You really still have to pay attention to the minutia of their disease to say, listen, something's just not sitting right. I think there's something more under the surface. Because most times the zebras will not hit you in the face. You will have that, right? You will have the patients in the unit that are crashing and burning and there's something odd going on, right? But more times than not, the zebras are subtle. And you, trust me, I've done a ton of cardiac MRs and not found cardiac sarcoid, right? But when you find it, it makes a world of difference to the patient because, you know, now he's on Celsept and other immunosuppressive therapies and he's doing fantastic, much more than standard heart failure medications would be able to do. So that's kind of fun about being in private practice is, you know, people think that all the academic guys get all the cool cases and granted they get, you know, subselection of patients because other people send them to them and say, listen, you have hokum, right? You should go to the hokum center. You have cardiac amyloid, you have, um, uh, you have sarcoid, you should go to these centers. But the fun part for me is recognizing those things in the general population, in the community that just comes strolling into your office. So yeah, I just saw him in the office the other day and those types of cases stick out. How did you become interested in medicine and decide you wanted to be a doctor? So I am one of those weirdos that I never, ever, ever wanted to do anything else. This is all I've wanted to do. I did surgery on a bear when I was like three or four and tried to remove his eye and he didn't really bear very well after that. So there's pictures of me asking to be a physician since I can remember this is all I've ever wanted to do, which is weird because when you talk to other people, a lot of times other people have passions that are surrounding medicine and medicine just makes sense with all of those passions combined. This is it for me. You know, my aunt was also a physician. Her and I were very close in age. So even though she was my aunt, my mom's sister, she was only 11 years older than me. So she went through med school when I was in my teens. So I had already wanted this forever. You know, she was very similar that this is kind of all we ever wanted to do. And we didn't come from a family of doctors. So, you know, she was the first in our family to be a physician. I followed shortly behind her, but I'm first generation American. My mom was born in Italy. My entire mom's side is Italian. You know, my grandparents brought them over here when my mom was, I think she was five or six, you know, so my grandfather was a carpenter, you know, like we're very blue collar people. And my family on my dad's side, were just run of the mill, not professionals. So this was what I've always wanted. My parents were both x-ray techs by trade, and then they excelled and moved to, to surpass that. So I remember very vividly being young and there being like x-ray books all over the house and anatomy books. And I remember very vividly looking through them at nauseam and I couldn't get enough of them. And it was like what I enjoyed reading and what I like to look at. So I'm one of those oddballs that there's nothing else I could imagine doing in life. Our dreams really do come true. Yeah, they do. <laughs> <laughs> when you put in the ridiculous amount of hours as you're experiencing right now. Definitely. So where did you go for undergrad? And were there any experiences there that led you into medicine, your childhood dream? 
So I loved my undergrad experience. I went to Marist, which is a small private Catholic school in upstate New York. The funny thing about me is that I probably should have done my research a lot better and gone to a school that had a bigger, more robust medicine department, pre-medicine department, I should say, because it really wasn't designed for that. Marist was a communications business school. Although I had the best time in college, and I highly recommend anyone who's listening to this to enjoy college because you don't get those four years back. It wasn't a medicine biology focused school. I had great academic advisors that basically sat me down and they interviewed me, I think in my probably junior year, you had to go before the, the academic committee. And two things really stand out. I had a professor who was chair of the biology department and he was awesome. And he knew stuff that I thought was just riveting to understand and really start to delve into physiology and why things work. And I think that's why I love cardiology so much is because it's all about why things happen. It's not rot memorization. It's physiology at its purest. And he was behind me a thousand percent. And he was like, listen, and I remember that interview so vividly because not coming from a huge biology pre-med program there was not as much guidance as some of my colleagues that I've seen later in life have had. That being said, at the end of my interview, he said, listen, Laura, I don't know where you're going to get in because they didn't have too much experience getting people into medical school. Although my grades were stellar, my MCAT was okay. He's like, I don't know where you're going to get in, but you're going to get in somewhere and this will happen for you. And in that moment, I was like, all right, I'm okay. This will be okay. The other interesting memory that really stands out from college, and I tell this to my kids because sometimes it's really good to hear the negative too, and to have that as a little bit of a fire inside to go prove somebody wrong. So I had this, was it a physiology? I think it was a physiology class and I aced it and I loved it. And I had a great time in this woman's class and about a year went by and I, it was the time that you need like letters. So I went to her office and I said, I'm applying to medical school. And, you know, I really love a letter from you. I think it would go far, like being in biology and anatomy and physiology. And she goes to me, come in, come in and sit down. And I'm like, okay. Like, so I come in and I sit down. I was ready to be like, like the other professors, they took your CV and they were like, yeah, sure. I'll send it in. Thanks so much. She sits me down and she goes, I think you're going to make a huge mistake and you'll never get into medicine. And this is a bad idea, Laura. You'll never thrive there. This is an awful idea for you. I was blindsided. And I sat there and I took it all because in that moment, this person who you kind of look up to is like smashing your dreams with a sledgehammer. And I left her room and I said, I can't believe that just happened. So fast forward, right? I get into medical school. I more than thrive. I got into the residency that I wanted. I got into the fellowship that I wanted. And I remind my kids that, oh, there's going to be, there's going to be naysayers, right? There's going to be people in your life that you would never think are the people that are going to put you down. And part of your driving force and your internal engine, if you will, has to be to stick to your guns and say, listen, I'm going to go out and do my damnedest to prove these people wrong and to show them that they're completely off base. And when I told my daughter, who's now almost nine, that story, she was like, mommy, 
did you ever call her and tell her what you do? So many years have gone by and I'm sure she subsequently retired that they would derive no benefit from that. But um, I was like, but you see the point, like these people who can't do, right? She was a biology professor at a great college, but not a good biology department who is clearly having her own issues with her place in life, projecting onto this 21, 20 year old student that, and trying to suppress her dreams that you just, you don't want to be those people in people's lives. And I, you know, it's just funny, the things that you remember that motivate you, that people are always like, oh yeah, he said this remarkable thing and it stuck with me forever. That request for for a recommendation has stuck with me to, you know, attending life. So it's not always the people that build you up. It can be also the people that tear you down, but you have to use that as the right type of motivation. Definitely. That is such a good lesson to be learned from a not so ideal situation. I was awful. That day was awful. (laughs) So how did you first learn about osteopathic school and what made you choose the school you ultimately attended? Okay. So my aunt, Natalie, who I mentioned before, had gone to NICOM on Long Island and being from Long Island, I went upstate to Marist, but I knew about DO school. You know, and when you're in college, you kind of don't understand the differences, the subtleties, the nuances. And I don't think you understand the differences even until you're in med school, right? And then you're like, OMM, what is this OMM business? I don't understand. But for me, it was when it came down to looking at schools, I sat with my aunt and she's like, listen, you know, there's all of this prestige out there. She's like, you've never wanted to do this for the prestige of it. You've wanted to do it because you want to do it, Right. And these people who they need the the right institution and the right letters and, you know, the right things behind their name. I'll tell you right now, I work with some people right now who have very prestigious pedigrees. We have the exact same job. <laughs> we, we do the exact same thing day in and day out. And I loved my experience at med school. I can't stress that enough. And I feel like when I really started to read about the differences and the subtleties between being an MD and a DO. I sat there for a minute. I remember thinking, wait a minute. So we have to learn everything that an MD learns and then all this other stuff. And we have to synergize it in real time in structure. Like I remember, you know, we, we, one of the first classes, right. You do anatomy, histo and micro simultaneously when we first started med school. And they timed it so that the anatomy lesson matched the OMM lesson. And it was seamless. And my friends who I knew at the time who were in MD school, they were going to lecture four days a week with a day off, usually midweek. We didn't have that. We had five days a week straight because that midweek day was your OMM day. And it was the day that you really understood, well, okay, I understand this on paper, right? I understand how the shoulder works anatomically. And I saw it in cadaver lab. but let me understand it with manipulation and let me understand it from that perspective, I think gave me a breadth of knowledge that I would never have had a full grasp of. And I think, you know, when you get into residency and you get to hang out with your MD counterparts, you really realize that we're kind of far ahead and in a really cool way because you have that technical exposure And it really rounds out your understanding of the human body and physiology as a whole. How did you decide on your specialty and what about it appealed to you the most? 
I think I mentioned a little bit of this before. So in med school right now, where you're at, right? Like you're in second year, so much information is coming at you so fast, right? And you'll notice as you further progress through your academics that some things come like nature. It just comes to you and you understand it. You can read it once and you completely process the information. It makes sense. Other things, you will bash your head against the book. And to this day, I probably still can't tell you the difference between an upper motor neuron lesion and a lower motor neuron lesion because it never went in. Cardiology just made beautiful sense. It's it's mechanics. It's a pump. It's very rudimentary physiology and everything happens for a reason. And I love that. And I love how it's so ordered and precise. And when one thing goes wrong, it can have a ripple effect and make everything wrong. And that's kind of internal medicine as a whole, right? Internal medicine, you're kind of looking at the person as a whole with the disease as part of them. And cardiology, I think for me anyway, exemplifies that that simplicity of the, the human form. Everything just makes sense. Things happen for a reason. Not much is random. I, I think I mentioned to you before, my husband's a rheumatologist. Everything in his field is random. Nothing makes sense to me. It just happens because it does. That never jived with me. I need logic. I need reason and precision. And then I also really love the fact in cardiology that I get to do stuff. Like I get to actually physically touch patients and do things. That was huge for me. When I was in residency, I was always the person that wanted to do the lines, do the procedure, be hands-on, get involved. And not so much in always in a cerebral sense, but always physically doing something. And I loved it. And I was good at it. So much so that one of the first things I, I was pregnant with, with my Charlotte, who is my oldest, and I had her in residency. And so I had her the March that I was about to graduate residency. So there's about three or four months left to residency. And I remember so vis- vividly, I was probably close to eight months pregnant. And one of the residents upstairs couldn't get a spinal tap. And they called and they're like, can you come help? And I'm like waddling up the stairs. (laughs) And I just remember talking to my belly because I was very nauseous with Charlotte that I was like, please just behave. Like, please hang out in there and like, just hang with me. And she did. And she was great. And she's, you know, we joke that like she's done procedures in utero, but that's the cool thing about cardiology is that I didn't have to give that stuff up, you know, and I still got to do the mental stuff like that. I found so many times in medicine, you had to make that firm choice between physically doing stuff, right? Surgical subspecialties and medical cerebral subspecialties, you know? And the cool thing for me with cardiology is that I didn't have to choose. I got to be able to sit and think and uh, do a very complex diagnostic case. And then I still get to physically do things, you know, um, what I'm a non-invasive cardiologist, so I don't do that many procedures anymore, but I do TEs. And for me, that's kind of like the blend of both of them. I get to physically do the probe, take the pictures, analyze the data, understand the physics of echo all simultaneously. And that it it just works for me. I absolutely loved that. So that I, I knew going into residency that I wanted to do cardiology. So I would recommend that. So if you know that you want to do a competitive subspecialty, try to go to a residency that has a track record of getting you into fellowship. So that's what I did. I went to a residency 
that had all medicine subspecialties available, which is not common. So, you know, because when you go to residency, right, you want your exposure to be as broad and all encompassing because in those three years, you get to see what you get to see under the umbrella of somebody else, right? There's always going to be an attending or a fellow or somebody else that's there to help, that's there to answer your questions and be your backup. And it's not all on your shoulders yet. So one day it will be. One day you're going to graduate and your name's on the chart and it's the scariest day. (laughs) Scarier than med school, scarier than residency, scarier than fellowship. When your name is on that chart and it says, you know, attending physician admitted to, you're kind of like, oh, okay, I can't mess this up. So the stuff that you get to see in residency allows you to build the confidence to know how to take care of things later. And same goes for fellowship. So speaking of residency, you completed your residency and fellowship at a well-recognized MD institution. How was your experience as a DO? Oh, superb. There was a bunch of us there. It's actually quite funny. My husband and I both knew we wanted to do internal medicine. This is way back in the day when you could pre-match. So you guys probably don't even know what that is. There used to be MD-only residencies and DO-only residencies. And in order to enter in as a DO, you had a choice because the DO match would come first, which was super annoying. And here's why. You could, you had to pick. And if you wanted to do the DO match, you weren't going to be eligible for the MD match and vice versa. So they had this loophole that MD programs had that would say, listen, you're a DO. Or I think it applied to foreign medical grads as well. And they would say, okay, if you are a DO or an FMG, you are eligible for a pre-match, which MDs were not eligible for. They had to go through the match. So if they offered you a pre-match, you could sign outside of the match and get your spot and never have to go through the, the awful turmoil of the match, which my husband and I knew that we obviously wanted to stay together. We got married I think when we were going into residency, we weren't married yet. We were engaged. We got married two weeks after med school graduation and then started residency two weeks subsequently. But they actually took us as a couple. So there's a couples match. And we were fortunate enough to do sub eyes at what used to be called Winthrop. Now it's NYU Long Island. But to me, it'll always be Winthrop. It's home. So we did sub eyes there very early in our fourth year. I think like early fall, not even fall yet. And then I did another clerkship in cardiology in December. And it was like the week before New Year's. And the chiefs that were there at the time called us both into their office and offered us pre-match, which was the biggest relief of burden. So they were very open to DOs and FMGs. And I had the best time in residency. So it actually worked out quite well that my husband and I both pre-matched there. And then one of our best friends, Tommy, who did medical school with us, also pre-matched there. And it was a fantastic environment. You know, you had attendings that were these giants of, of medicine and knew more and understood more medicine than I think I, I could even, at, at that point in time, I even knew existed. This guy, Dr. Amazaloso, who subsequently, unfortunately has passed, was the best human and physician. He was a CMO of the hospital, so not a small title. He insisted on doing morning report with all the residents every single Tuesday morning, not Monday, because Monday you review the cases from the weekend, but every single Tuesday morning, Dr. A would do morning report 
And he would make you think in ways that you never thought you could understand or think about a case. And he would dissect it and he would open it and close it and, and turn it all on its head. But there was never once a day where it was like, well, Laura's a DO, so she's not up to snuff. I will tell you this, coming out of a DO school, you have a chip on your shoulder. That's a great thing. And I know that sounds ridiculous. And here's why. The chip on your shoulder will force you and make you better. And it will make you work harder than your peers and be smarter than your peers and put in the extra effort in ways that I don't think coming out of any other type of training you would. And it, it makes you want more, which is a good thing and a bad thing, I guess. But that chip goes really far. So in residency, I knew I wanted fellowship. And with fellowship, you know, in cardiology, it, it was not a small feat at all. The cardiology program at Winthrop was superb and I, I couldn't have asked for better training, but every day, every single day of my three years of residency was to try to get me into fellowship. There was no roundabout way about it. It was, I'm busting my back to try to get into this fellowship and, you know, doing research and doing clinical hours with the, the, the cardiology attendings and doing everything extra I possibly could in order to further my, my likelihood of getting in. But there was never a day that it was like, well, Laura's a DO. She's to the, the back of the room. Like we, we don't interact with her. It was quite the opposite. It was my chief at the time was a DO. A bunch of the fellows, you know, that were very well-respected were DOs. And um, it was a longstanding joke at Winthrop that a lot of the DOs won a lot of the awards, which turns out to be very true so, <laughs> because um. So I won the the uh, intern of the year award and then the third year of the year award. And it was a joke because my friend won the second year of the year award is also a DO. And it, it was quite the opposite of what you'd think, right? People look at the name of the institution and it's an MD heavy program. And now it's backed by NYU and their own residents and graduates are there, but it was never a thing. It, mm-hmm. it just, it wasn't the culture there, which I couldn't have been thank- more thankful for. So during your fellowship, you went on to become chief fellow. Do you have any advice on how to stand out in a program to earn that level of recognition? Yeah, so cardiology is a weird place, right? Cardiology is one of the subspecialties in all of medicine, not just internal medicine, that has the fewest women. There was a Medscape article a couple of years ago that the only group that has fewer women represented than cardiology is actually urology, which is logical. So as a woman in cardiology, I only had like one female attending and there there was a female fellow every year in in the program, but it was one of those things that you kind of like, again, with the chip on your shoulder, you just kind of work harder and, and, and try to be as knowledgeable as, as aggressive and as on top of your game in order to stand out. I was even more conscious of this because I had my first daughter when I was a third year resident. So when I started fellowship, Charlotte was three and a half months old. Thank God she slept. She was an excellent baby. She ate, she slept, she did everything. I think she knew that like, I couldn't handle another thing, (laughs) but it makes you harder and it makes you want it more. And it was one of those things that I, my husband laughs at me. He's like, cause when I'm not in charge, I'm not happy. And he (laughs) makes sure that I remember that. But it's true. And it's one of those things that I knew that I wanted to 
take control and be part of, of, I think people that make the decisions and do the schedule and organize things, be a leader. And that's just who I am. And that kind of really came to a peak in fellowship. And it was one of those things that just really came naturally. I loved what I was doing for the first time. I was doing stuff that none of it, what, what was not interesting, everything was fascinating. You know, I I remember very vividly, I was like a first or second year fellow and I was reading echoes with one of my attendings and one of these med students was there and we all know the type he's, he was like, I want to do cardiology, super excited in med school. And, you know, some people get wrapped up in a profession by the lore of it, right. The, the prestige, if you will, like this happens all the time with surgical subspecialties, right. And this kid was really, he was like, I want to do cardiology. There's nothing else in the world I want to do. Cool. Sitting down reading echoes. And we were reading an echo that had definity and the filter on the echo was changed. And it just, when you're in love with a, a thing of medicine, it's cool and it's pretty and it's beautiful. And my one attending and it, it, the, the way that it, the echo looked and she goes, doesn't that look awesome? Doesn't that look beautiful? And this kid was like, I don't think it's beautiful. And then she turns it without missing a beat and was like, you're not meant for cardiology. This is beautiful. This is awesome. Right. And it's that passion that for the first time in my professional life, there was nothing that stunk. Everything was awesome. And you really get that experience. And my program was fantastic because if there was something that you were passionate about, you could run with it. And there was nobody in your way telling you no. And if you wanted to be more involved in whatever, like I really liked non-invasive stuff, obviously by what I do, that you could do more and you could see more and you could be exposed to more. And if there was ever a a question that you wanted answered or uh, any type of thing that you wanted to pursue, the doors were open. There was never a no, you know, it was always, yeah, let's see how we can make that work. And for the first time, that's all I ever wanted to do. You know, in general medicine, internal medicine, you have to do everything, right? I wanted no part of diabetes management. I wanted no part of, you know, understanding the pituitary axis and all this stuff that you have to know and you should know, and it's good medicine, but I'd rather not manage event, (laughs) you know, I'd rather not do those things. So in fellowship, I hit my stride and it was one of those times where you really have the opportunity to excel in something that you're truly passionate about. And I think that came through and, you know, my program director, what, uh, you know, Dr. Jellyman was fantastic. And he gave just the right amount of support and cynicism all mixed into one to make you into a, a good human and a good cardiologist all at the same time. Like he would ask the obvious humanistic questions at the bedside that all too often get missed. Like, why are we intubating this 92 year old woman? This is just wrong. You know, meanwhile, in your medicine brain, you're like, oh, I got to, I got to fix it. I got to do, you know, I got to help. And helping is not always what you think it is. So that part of my education was tremendous. So as far as being chief fellow, my peers were awesome. My my three guys who I went to fellowship with in my class are like my brothers. You can't ever forget or ever have a, a better relationship than the one that you forge in battle, right? You are in the trenches with these people. <laughs> when I did fellowship, you did 36-hour call. So you worked all day, you worked all night, you worked all day again, and then you finally got to go home. And we at Winthrop was really cool because they had housing. So you lived across the street from fellowship, which was awesome because you would stumble home most times after or to the bar and with your friends either way. 
but it was awesome. And I think I, I finally had the, I was in the right milieu and the right environment to really thrive and love what I was doing. So, you know, it came with the downside too, right? Like I, I made all the schedules. I decided things that nobody likes me for, but it came with the territory. It was great. What was your experience like looking for a job and how did you choose the location and practice or hospital? And what were the pros and cons of your choice? One of the biggest decisions I think anybody coming out of training has to make is academic or private. For me, I I liked people. You know, I liked seeing just normal run-of-the-mill people. I liked I like preventative cardiology, right? Like we were talking about briefly before and teaching people how to better their own health and stop a disease process, if you will, in its tracks once it's already begun. So I found that academics didn't really have that as much as I thought it might. And I wasn't into, I was never a big researcher. So when it came down to look for jobs, it was like, well, there's these academic jobs that you have to publish every so often. And I did love teaching. I still do love teaching. And that was the only downside with when you were looking at jobs, private versus academic. But I wanted no part of research. I wanted no part of publications. I, you know, I liked talking to people and interacting with people and not so much like planning a trial. So for me, it was quite easy in terms of academic or not. Then the rest kind of happened by really great and luck. You know, my aunt, who was an internist at the time, went to med school on Long Island and we did residency at Winthrop, which is in Mineola in Nassau, um, very big hospital. And my family was from Suffolk County. So about an hour away. And like I had said, I had my first daughter in residency and my second daughter, my Amelia came in the beginning of my third year of fellowship. So that was fun. I took my echo boards eight months pregnant. That was uh, an experience I don't recommend on anybody, but she's amazing. So it's all worth it. So I knew I had these two beautiful girls and I needed help right? My husband's also a full-time physician and we, we did med school together. We did residency together, but his fellowship was a year shorter than mine. So his, his fellowship was only two years. So he needed to get a job. And then the question became, well, does he get a job in Suffolk County while I'm still at Winthrop or does he get a job just for a year anywhere? And then we move and we go someplace else. We came to the very fast realization that I needed family right? We needed a a support network, which I cannot stress enough. They are the only reason that I'm able to do this job. You know, my mom is with my kids right now. um, So is my dad. They are our backbone. They are the reason that I'm able to do everything that I want to do. So Luke, my husband was like, listen, I, there's this group I want to join in Suffolk. So he commuted for a year. And then um, through my aunt, it was very funny. I was actually of all places, I was actually at my grandfather's wake. He had just passed. I had just become a fellow. And this was literally the July I started fellowship. And I was talking to somebody holding Charlotte, who is like three months old, four months old. And Natalie comes across me. She's like, you have to come with me right now. I, I need you to meet these people. And I said, I'm talking to people. Like I'm at a wake and you know, socializing. She's like, you have to come with me right now. And um, she was that personality. She was the just light everywhere she went. And she was like, you have to come. I don't care what else you're doing. You have to come. So she introduced me to these two wonderful, wonderful guys, you know, John Weinstein and Lev Lebarski, who she's known forever, who, you know, she went to med school with. And I think Jonathan did training with uh, her husband, Phil. Amazing guys. I didn't know them from a hole in the wall. And she goes, come with me. They're going to give you a job. I'm like a five day in fellow. I'm not, jobs aren't even on my radar. 
So I meet them. They're incredibly nice, you know, weird place to meet people. Three years goes by. I start interviewing for a job. And, you know, I talked to the guys at Winthrop. I talked to a bunch of people. I knew that, you know, we needed to be in Suffolk County for the kids. I needed somebody to be there, right? Like when I can't make it home on time, I needed somebody there. So I called North Suffolk Cardiology and the rest is kind of this wonderful history that I have these amazing partners who are like family and have the awesome support structure of this huge practice that I get to do all the cool stuff that I enjoy to do in a private practice setting. And I still get to teach and I go to three different hospitals. You know, one is the major university hospital out here, Stony Brook, and the other two are small community hospitals, but it's awesome. And it all worked out so fortuitously that I couldn't have planned it better, you know? So it, it just, some things just kind of happened for the right reasons, I guess. But yeah, that was a very funny, you know, come with me now. You have to meet these people. They're going to give you a job at my grandfather's wake. And I met the most amazing guys and they're still my practice. I, you know, they're, they're my partners, my senior partners. I, I talked to them and were with all of them last night in the partners meeting, but they're fantastic. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the right place, right time, right people, right network was so vital. And the the biggest thing for us in terms of location was the kids. It's funny. I've had a kid in every aspect of my training. You know, I had Charlotte when I was a resident. I had Amelia when I was a fellow and I had Luca in attending life. All been very different, all very, very amazing. But there's no way I could be able to do this without family support and structure around. It's amazing how things work out. Oh, totally. (laughs) So speaking about your pregnancies, could you touch on what your experience was like being pregnant during training and then as an attending? And if you have any advice that you wish you knew at the time? It's hard. <laughs> it it's hard because you always want to be better, right? You you want to be better than the guy standing next to you. And in my field, it's usually all guys standing next to you. The thing I wish I would have known more is that I should have expected more out of people. And I know that sounds really silly. I had Charlotte in residency, Amelia in fellowship, and Luca in attending life. You know, I got pregnant with Luki, and I was like, oh my gosh, I am in this fourteen physician practice. There's only two women. I'm like, I don't know. And then the, my, my male partners were the most supportive, <laughs> do whatever you need. We're here. We support you. We're behind you 1 million percent, which is not everywhere. And I can't stress that to the women out there enough that you got to find these right people. But to say they're supportive was the biggest understatement ever, but it's hard, right? It's hard because Society tells you, you need to be a mom 24 seven and you are a mom 24 seven, but society tells you this very interesting thing. It it tells you, well, you need to be a great example for your, your kids and for your daughters particularly, but don't work. You got to be there, right? Like you got to be this example and they have a very limited, narrow window of what the, the example should look like. And when Charlotte came, I really struggled with that because like I said, I, I worked 36 hour call my baby was a baby. Like she was teeny tiny. You know, she was underweight probably because I was so stressed out throughout residency and pregnancy. She was only 613 when she was born. She was peanut. She looked like a, we, we joke with her now that she's like grown in this beautiful young lady that, that she looked like a, a skinny chicken. Like, and, and it was all my fault. I was a ball of nerves and how am I going to manage this? And you know, I was, I was about five months pregnant with Charlotte. December 1st was the match for fellowship. So I remember very vividly that morning, you know, I'm, I'm five months pregnant. I'm having this baby. She's due in March. I want this fellowship to start in July. Nothing can go wrong. 
right? Like I ha- I'm, I'm in this such of a narrow window that I, by the grace of God, have, but it all worked, you know? They're amazing kids and they're so adjusted and they know what I do and they're all in. And, you know, my Charlotte wants no part of medicine. She's made that very, very clear. She's telling me that she's going to be an astronaut and go to Mars, but they have the exposure. They they know that mom works. Mom is a mom 1000% and, but I'm a doctor 1000% and those percentages don't add up. Right. And society will tell you constantly as a woman in medicine, you don't fit. You are a round peg in a square hole and there's no place here for you. Um, and so many of my colleagues have deferred children and deferred family life and, or gone the opposite way and, you know, changed how they practice and changed what their dreams were to make it all fit. And I can't tell you this enough, but with the right spouse and the right support, it all works. You know, my husband's a full-time physician. We get it. My husband gets it. I didn't get home till 1030 last night from leaving the house a little before seven yesterday morning because I, I, you know, you work, you're, you're busy, you have stuff, but there's never been a question of when you're coming home, what are you doing? You know, are you sure you're going to really be that late or the kids need this or the kids need that, or you just work and with the right support, with the right spouse, you know, it, it just, it works. Don't defer your dreams. Don't defer kids. You know, I can't tell you how many of my colleagues, you know, wait and they wait till they are, you know, done with training and don't get me wrong. (laughs) Training with little people is hard fellowship with little people is really hard, but I would never have changed my decisions ever, ever, ever with the, the kids that I have, the, the blessings that I have because of them, because when I walk through the door and you get those hugs and you get that loving, even if it's like, mommy, where have you been? Or mommy, you are late. And you know, mommy, we ate dinner without you, which is usually the, the case. I wouldn't change them for the world. It's, it's, it's it, it, the biggest blessing is, is having the ability to do both. And it's hard. I joke with some of my, my partners because they get to do the fun side and it's just the nature of how you build your home. But I'm very OCD. I'm very controlling. I'm very, you know, that's just my personality. And my husband, thank God, is not. He is the go with the flow. He is the super chill. He's the hardly ever gets annoyed. I'm the the explosive one, if you will, but it works. And without that balance, there's no way any of it works. So just trying to maintain that, that mindset that training is not forever. Take everything you can out of training, which I know that sounds really silly, but somebody said something to me once a very long time ago, right after I had Charlotte, she had just finished her, her fellowship and I was about to become a fellow. She was my chief resident when I started, and she is now a gastroenterologist with two beautiful girls. And she told me, she said, they're never going to remember this. And I said, what do you mean? Of course, they're going to remember this. I just had them. They're brand new babies. Like they're these little, little souls that I am, I am reliant on. They, they are reliant on me a thousand percent. And she looked at me square in the face and said, they will not remember this. They will not remember you not coming home. They will not remember you missing dinner. They will not remember any of it. They will remember all of the good. And it's so true. Shar has no memory of me not coming home for weekends at a time. Amelia has no concept of me even being on call overnight because when she was born, I was a third year fellow, did call once a month. So she had no concept of that. 
And my Luki is probably the most spoiled of it all now because I'm an attending and there are no overnights away from home anymore. So I, by grace, had them at a time when me not being there and not being the 24-7 all in from infancy didn't hurt them. And I think now looking back, which in that moment, the amount of guilt that you feel as a mother is the worst thing in the world. It's, it's tangible. It's palpable. It makes you choke and gag the amount of guilt that you feel when you're rounding with somebody who takes hours to see one patient. And you're just like, can we just go? Can we just, I have these little people who are desperately awaiting my presence. And can we just move this along? Meanwhile, your co-fellows got nowhere to go. They have no one waiting. And that guilt is awful, but just know that having them is so much better than not. Mm -hmm. And, you know, being that role model for them is the coolest thing because, you know, my husband tells me this all the time because as a mom, sometimes you have your head down too much to pick it up and realize, you know, the the beautiful things that you've been been allowed to create. And, you, you know, you finally pick your head up and you look and you say, Charlotte is telling us that she wants to, you know, be a, 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 um, an astrophysicist engineer and and explore these new things and, and and do all of these amazing things and has the confidence to say it out loud, right? As this little girl has the ability to say, yeah, this is what I want to do. My Amelia, I, I don't know if this is really what she wants, but she's always said she wants to be a heart doctor like mommy, which breaks my heart and lights it all up at the same time because knowing the amount of <laughs> of crap that she'll have to get through in order to get there is awful and a burden that I wouldn't put on her if it wasn't for her own choice. And it's really, really cool to know that some part of their empowerment is coming from watching me and, 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 and having them as part of my, my journey, because my journey wouldn't be the same thing without them. And that's, that's really cool. When I actually listen to my husband for a minute and, and take a step back and just look and just observe them. And watch the people that we, we we've made. It's super cool. It it's harder than hard, and you're gonna have those moments where you're gonna miss the PTA meetings, and you're gonna miss you know the stuff that society tells you you should be at. But it's just stuff. It's not the importance. You know you, the the amount of mom shaming from other mothers. I can't begin to tell you because it's so immense. But when you find your crew of women that support you wholeheartedly and are in with you, not necessarily in medicine, but in life, they're just, they're, they're your people. It's all good. And then you realize you're like, I'm okay. We're okay. This whole thing is working. We're fine. It's, it's just, it's, it's, it's a joy that I never thought I'd have outside of cerebral interaction, but watching your kids grow and um, experience life through them is the coolest thing. So I can't stress that to women med students enough that you don't have to defer. You don't have to wait. You don't have to do that. You have the right spouse at your side. The sky is your limit. You mentioned that your husband is also a physician. Can you touch on what your experience was like having two physician household and going through training? It's nutty. It's (laughs) absolutely crazy, but it's a balance. You know, my husband is a rheumatologist. His mind works very different than I. He is more of the, there's a thousand little pieces of information and he has the ability to synergize it and say, oh, it looks like you have lupus. But being in a two physician household means that 
and we both work full time means that somebody's always going, somebody's always on. And the really cool thing about that is the level of understanding that you have. Because when he's running late, because there was a super annoying patient that wouldn't leave and had 10,000, you know, doorknob questions, if you will, you know, when you go to grab the doorknob and you try to leave and they still talk, you get it. You know, when I'm stuck in a meeting super late or, you know, my tea gets pushed or a late consult comes in at the hospital, you get it. It's a balancing act. Like you wouldn't believe you feel like you're a tightrope walker and juggling at the same time, especially now that there's three kids and there's, you go from playing a man-on-man defense to a zone defense, but both being physicians, the amount of understanding that you get from your, your partner is so cool because I see so many people in medicine or not, not just in medicine, but in life that their life partner doesn't get it. And not because they don't mean to, just because if you don't go through that experience, if you don't go through that torture, you don't understand what it means, right? You don't understand what it means that I have a sick person in the CCU. This happened just last week. This woman was dying all day in the CCU. And I I literally moved heaven and earth to, to keep her and she passed ultimately. But you don't get that type of understanding from somebody who doesn't appreciate medicine. So to say that it's easy, it's not, but we both make sacrifices on both sides. So his big thing this last year was he insisted on being our daughter's softball coach, both of them. So he carved out his day and moved around patients, which is really cool in his subspecialty because he can, he can structure his day kind of how he wants to, because it's all office-based to say, I got to be at the ball field at 530. Amelia has a game, right? I'm her coach. And it's like the coolest thing to watch him coach the girls because coach is dad. And that is just fantastic. I was late to almost every game this last year, just by the nature of life, but it's a balance. My husband doesn't cook, not because he doesn't want to try just because his hands don't work in the kitchen. I think he's just, it doesn't work, which is a good thing. I think the girls (laughs) appreciate that he doesn't cook, but I prep all the meals. I make sure everything's in the house. I take care of all of that. So it's what you're good at. You find your strengths together and you should magnify them together. But it's it's hard to say that it's easy is an understatement. So we recently interviewed Dr. Philip Nizza and he discussed your aunt, Natalie Asaloni. Can you tell us a little bit about her life and her influence on yours? I know you've touched on it. Sure. Events are definitely tragic, but is there anything that you learned from her journey? I learned a ton. So she was the one that always told me, have the kids do the stuff. Don't postpone, don't delay. If you want something, go for it. She was the one that was like, what are you doing? Like, why, you know, what are you thinking with this? And she was the one that would always call you on your BS and then say like, that is a dumb move that, you know, that doesn't make any sense or vice versa. Like you should definitely do that. So, like I said, even though she's my aunt, she was only 11 years older than me. You know, my mom is one of five and my mom's the second oldest and she was the youngest. So there's something like 17 years between my mom and Natalie, and then only 11 between Natalie and I. So we grew up much closer like sisters than we did aunt and niece. Watching her go through medical school was an eye opener. She lived in Queens at the time. My family lived in Suffolk. So I saw her, you know, every, every once in a while, but the impact that it has left is tremendous. So I just remember her being locked upstairs for hours on end. And then she would come out with this like bewildered face on and almost like not know what day it was. And she looked at me one day and she goes, are you sure you want to do this? With this very earnest, just 
what are you thinking, girl? Get out, run. This is madness. Are you sure you want to do this? And I just remember looking at her and go, yeah, I, I, I do. And her paving the way for me has been the biggest, biggest blessing. So when you get to med school, you have all these books, right? And there's so, and I remember vividly. So my grandfather, her dad was a carpenter and everything in our home was handmade from the kitchen cabinets to everything, to my bedroom furniture. Now, you know, my, my wedding gift was a grandfather clock that was all handmade. Everything was handmade. And I remember her coming home and going, I don't have enough space. I don't have a desk. And he was like, all right, what, what do you, what do you type of desk do you want? You want like drawers? You want? And she's like, I just need a really large space to put all this stuff. And I remember thinking, oh my God, what are we doing that this need, you need this much space. So anyway, my grandfather makes this very boring, plain looking desk, huge, you know, thing. And it was enormous. I remember being young and thinking that this is the biggest desk. You need all these books to fill up all this desk. This is crazy. Fast forward, you know, she goes through life and um, she's always the one pushing you, telling you, you can do this. You, you got this, you, you can, you can have the kids. You can, I called her on the day that we were you know, trying to figure out, you know, what to do about a house. And there was this house uh, developing people. I was like, I want to build a house. And she's like, that's awesome. Let's talk about how you do it. So we built our own house. She was, my husband got really, really sick with viral myocarditis when I was, Charlotte was like 18 months old and he was in the CCU and she was the phone call. She was the person to call and be like, I need somebody to talk to that gets it. And, you know, in the last three years, so so she had a very, very rare cancer that kind of blindsided us. And as a physician, you want nothing more than to fix and do. And, um, none of us could fix her and none of us could do it. And none of us could, um, save her, but then you have this fantastic ability to still have her. So the desk that I'm sitting at right now is her desk. This, this is her stuff. A couple of months ago when I was pregnant with Lukey, I I hurt my back really bad. And I told my husband, I said, can you go downstairs and get the green OMM book? Cause I'm, my back is killing me. And I, I can't take anything because I'm pregnant. I need you to figure out how to fix my back. He goes downstairs. He gets the green book. Of course, the green book was Natalie's. Everything is highlighted. Everything is written in because that's how her and I both study. Like you highlighted everything and you realize there was no sense in highlighting anything at all because the whole page is, is yellow, but you still have her. And that tangible existence that I still get to have is something that even though she passed way too young, she passed only at 45, I still get that. I still get that, that relationship that she would, we would joke because we have, you know, funny, crazy Italian family members. And they would have all these medical questions. And I would say, I'm deferring to the senior physician. I I am not the senior physician here. You are, you're in charge. And I still get that. And even though I'm still mad at her a little bit for leaving me with all of these relatives who now I don't have that senior physician to say, you know, no, you should call Matt. You should, you should really let her know what's going on. You know, I'm just a cardiologist. She's the internist. She's the real brains. It's really sucky some days, really, really sucky especially when you have hard days as, as like we were saying before, as a mom and a doctor, you know, she would get it, but you still get the guidance. Even now, you know, she never got to meet my son that really burns, but um, it's all okay because I know what she would say. I know what, what she would tell me, you know, she, when she would tell me to suck it up, when she would tell me to fight harder, when she would tell me what to do, what to say, how to manage a situation, you know? So 
even though that you know you don't get that in real time you still you, you get that lasting legacy that she left behind which you know i i i couldn't ask for more she definitely left quite the legacy and she left a great mentor for you so it's a blessing to have that <laughs> it's funny because her and i were very very similar down to weird stuff like blood type like we're the only fam- people in the family with the same blood type and it's fun be- when now as a mom I see her boys grown and these beautiful young men and you know what she would say in situations and you know how she would handle situations. And part of you still has the ability to snap yourself out of a bad thought or snap yourself out of doing stupid things to be like, what are you doing? You're an idiot. Like, knock it off. Which is fantastic that she left that. So our final question for today is what was the best piece of advice that you got throughout your education or training that you always think of and would like to pass on? I know this sounds very silly and it's not from anybody that you would think it's not from a, you know, a brilliant mentor. My grandpa always told me, put your head down and just work really hard, but don't forget to look up and see where you're going. You know, so many times in medicine, you lose track of who you are and even what day it is. My dad reminds me so often that I I was a first year med student, oblivious to the ongoings of the world, studying 24-7. And I came home for a weekend and they were watching that show, The Biggest Loser. And I was like, this show's so cool. How is this a brand new show? He's like, this has been out for a really long time. Like, kind of like, where have you been? <laughs> but I was always reminded, you put your head down and you just you just work. You work really hard, but you don't forget to pick your head up every once in a while and, and kind of remember where you're going, right? You have you have your eyes forward and, and see, oh, I, I want that. I want that unattainable goal that everyone in, in my past has taught. That's too hard for you. You know, you, you can't do that. You're never going to become a cardiologist out of a, a nothing DO, you know, med school with, you know, so-so board scores. You, you're never going to get there. And to put your head down and say, oh, yes, I will. Oh yes, I will, and 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 I will be better that you, and than you when when I'm there, you know. So I think that that is very simple and and very pointed. But I, I think that that that's it, right? That that's that's your life right now, right? You're a med student. You just you're with your head in the books constantly, very literally, day in and day out. But don't forget where you're going, right? Don't forget what you're doing this all for. It's it's for a goal. It's it's for what you want, and don't let anybody sidetrack you from it. That is great advice to end on. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure hearing your story. Thanks so much for having me. This was fun. This concludes our episode of Do or Do Not. Send all inquiries, comments, suggestions, and even let us know if there's someone you want us to interview to do or do not podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to like us on Facebook at Do or Do Not Podcast for updates. If you enjoyed our podcast, please share it with your classmates and administration. We have plenty of more interviews lined up, and we're excited to share them with you. This is Tian Yu Shea. Thank you guys so much for listening to Do or Do Not.